Hello and welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by correspondents Jack Searle and Jasmine Rapson and reporter Nick Cattuno. On the podcast this week, we're going to be discussing Simon Stevens's marathon appearance at a committee of MPs, during which some pretty significant comments were made around NHS recovery, efficiency and future-proofing the workforce. We're also going to talk about NHS England's rapid change in tack when it comes to the collection of vaccine ethnicity data, an update on the vaccine programme's targets and more of what's happening with test and trace. Um, So first of all, as I said, um, we're going to be talking about the questioning of Simon Stevens and Jack, you were listening intently to this. Um, We saw him speak just two weeks ago about the vaccine in a in a group, um, but this time it was just him. Um, So did the conversation have more of an interrogative feel? It was it was a fairly chunk sizable session. It was the joint um, hearing from the Science and Technology Committee and Jeremy Hunt's Health Select Committee. Um, and there were some rather pointed questions from various MPs, um, certainly around uh, prioritisation of vaccine rollout. Generally, though, it felt more kind of measured. It was, I suppose, given if you're sitting down for two hours and this sort of thing, it's quite difficult to maintain a kind of a head of steam. Um, uh, but there was uh, various different points covered, some quite interesting bits and pieces around, as you say, around workforce and ensuring resilience in, in the sort of the longer term. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I'd say I'd say it was more it was more of a measured affair rather than um, rather than anything too heated. Mm. So, what were some of the kind of I suppose standout questions from your perspective? Um, what were the kind of moments that he sort of was really kind of pressed on? Um, the most sort of, I think, the sharpest moment of questioning was around the um, uh, the decision to to um, change the dosing regime for for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, this twelve week gap, um, and uh, I think the questions were, were were most pointed at that point, and I think it was they were the easiest for Simon Stevens to answer because he just deferred to the chair of JCVI who gave evidence to another committee relatively recently and talked about what the CA, the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor have been saying. So mm. I think actually, um, uh, whilst whilst perhaps the most uh, barbed uh, questions, the easiest to respond to, the most interesting, I think, from our point of view, certainly were around um, uh, the ensuring the resilience of public services in the NHS um, mm. in the longer term. And I thought the sort of particularly um, uh, interesting soundbite towards the end in an answer to a question from Greg Clark, which was about, you know, the idea of having buffer and excess capacity and the, the risk, the inherent risk that we've now seen of running public services at the sort of um, just in time, 99%, running hot, mm. I think is the jargon. Um, and actually, it's really we've now seen it's really important to build in buffer. Um, and Stephen said buffer looks like waste until it's not. Um, and actually, what we've seen certainly over the last year um, is that lack of uh, capacity, lack of resilience in the health service around staffing and around staffing numbers. Um, mm. Well, you know, there's the, the the dust had settled has settled on the efforts to buy tens of thousands of ventilators and so forth. So there there is still possibly a question mark over the sort of the physical hardware available to the NHS and the infrastructure that it it, it runs on, you know, around the supply of oxygen and that sort of thing in some some trusts. But parking that to one side, obviously the biggest concern has been having 
enough anaesthetists and enough ICU nurses and mm -hmm. enough um, uh, 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 doctors and, 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 and nurses to care for the huge number of people in hospital whilst also trying to do um, the non-COVID stuff as well. Um, and I thought I thought it was quite interesting that Stephen sort of said several times, both in that session and then in the evening when he was at a number 10 um, briefing, uh, talking about looking at long, a more longer term attitude towards training and staffing numbers in the NHS. Mm. And what was kind of anything specific suggested in order to kind of take that longer term view on staffing? Yeah, Jeremy Hunt came up with a really interesting idea, which I think he's floated before, but which is mm. to kind of to have a um, uh, an independent body like the Office for Budget Responsibility or the Office for National Statistics or something that's sort of um, slightly set outside government to work with the NHS each year to to figure out what its training and workforce requirements will be um, in the longer term, mm. uh, which is obviously uh, more difficult for the Treasury to ignore than just the um, the usual kind of lobbying from Skipton House for more yeah. uh, for more people, um, uh, and Simon Stevens didn't say explicitly yes or no to that. He did sort of skate around it because he's a, a political animal and he's never going to you know he's, he's hard mm. pressed to get a, a, a direct answer to a to a broad far reaching question like that. But he certainly you know he did say that anything that can provide the NHS with that more long term perspective on on staffing. Um, would be very welcome. I think he said he did. He did say there was a sort of an inherent paradox in the way the NHS is funded, which is that they have really good medium-term uh, uh, understanding on their sort of their revenue funding, their day-to-day -day mm. operational costs. They get kind of multi-year settlements for that. But uh, the paradox is the things that you need that long-term perspective on, which is the 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 infrastructure and the estate and mm. workforce. They don't get that long-term funding planning. They get, you know, it's much more short-termist. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, so yeah, very strong sense that um, uh, that I think uh, chief exec for, of the NHS, um, as he currently is, um, will probably push for um, uh, some uh, some more long-term, more robust uh, funding and planning for staffing uh, post-pandemic. I think it is. It is. I think for many, it will be frustrating that it's. It has taken a pandemic to get the kind of um, long term view on staffing, which is it's pretty remarkable, really. I mean, we know I know that there, there's been the kind of the workforce plan um, in in um, well, in draft mode, I think, since about 2017. And um, I think we've kind of HE has been working on um, well, single year spending review um, allocations for a while. And obviously that makes it really tricky to plan ahead. But um, I wonder as well, I mean, obviously Simon Stevens has been chief executive as of the NHS for, has it been quite a few years now? Five, has it been, I should know this, five years, six years? listeners write in um but um <laughs> for, for quite a while but yeah now now this is sort of um yeah kind of um becoming a priority it's quite interesting mm. um and also around i suppose um nhs recovery and, and obviously staff recovery and um we have seen um well um kind of um, calls this week from NHS leaders and chief execu executives urging for um, elective, the elective kind of pressure on electives not to come back straight away. Um, but um, was was that also covered in this questioning, Jack? Yeah, the, um, uh, I think 
Simon Stevens spoke more broadly around um, some of the, what, what might be some of the more clinical priorities for the NHS in the future. And he, you know, he went back to the long term plan. Remember that? That, um, uh, that arcane piece of history that it feels like now um, and did say that sort of that a lot of the work that went into that will still be relevant looking at um, the, the different clinical priorities that are, that really kind of reduce the lost the lost years of, of healthy living you know quality of mm-hmm. life um, rather than not just sort of purely mortality and morbidity looking around things like health and um, a, a heart disease and that sort of thing um, but he did press quite hard on um, mental health issues going forward mm. you know he said whilst it's you know it l- looks like that for, mercifully suicide rates haven't gone up during lockdown and so forth and so at least sort of data indicates that mental health issues will be of an enormous importance going forward and longer term and he did cite you know in the short term immediately um, uh, a really sort of uh, worrying rise in the number of um, mental health issues in young children and young people and certainly urgent referrals into eating disorder units and so he said that that will be at the front of the queue or near very near the front of the queue mm. those units will be very near the front of the queue for the 500 million that's been earmarked by the treasury for mental health um, mm. over the next year um, but then he did also speak um, more specifically around the elective issue um, he was asked uh, if uh, there's this uh, figure of a billion pounds to help tackle the elective backlog that's been floating around uh, for the last sort of month or two. Um, and he asked mm-hmm. if that would be sufficient. And again, you know, he didn't say, he quite, I think, conspicuously didn't say yes. He did say that we don't know what the shape of the elective backlog and that demand is going to be yet. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're, we're still right in the midst of um uh fighting with fires absolutely come the spring we'll have a better idea and i think actually there's there's a very strong sense that that um uh you know the nhs is going to take on quite a lot more water before we can get to a point where we start to bail out on the elective side Mm. um what about cancer did he was was that was that raised at all because i feel like that's that's been a real just more and more more and more stories about cancer op cancellations and cancer treatment cancellations over the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. and it's it's really really concerning because it's this sort of it it it, it, it when people move into different sort of categories of, of of cancer you're starting to see really dramatic changes on mm. their you know their future prospects you know this is going, going from having a good chance of surviving five years in good health to having an even chance of surviving one year in good health and for some cancers, you know, it's mm. deeply, deeply um, disquieting. He did say that um, chemo and radiotherapy seems to be holding up well um, mm. and that those procedures are, are continuing. I mean, obviously, there'll be variation around the country and I, I wouldn't want to um, uh, over, over, over gloss that, but he seemed to be under the impression that that's, that's sort of just about carrying on. The big concern is around surgeries and this comes back to the um, the general kind of elective backlog as well, and of of, of course comes back to that old thing workforce because the rate yes. limiting step is anaesthetists. You can't mm. you can't be operating on someone's tumor if your anaesthetist is um, busy helping keep keep people alive in ICU with COVID. Um, so again, it comes back to that lack of um, uh, sort of workforce capacity. Where absolutely, yeah, no slack at all in the system. Yeah, and this has just made it more obvious than ever. Mm, um, yeah. and, and just um, just finally, what was anything said around um, vaccination and the programme or was that was that kind of not focused on as much in this particular session? 
Um, well, I think it would be interesting to, um, to pick up with uh, Jasmine later on a couple of the points he made, but one that mm. really stuck out to me was on a line of questioning around the prioritisation and actually thinking about the, you know, do we're going to change the age categorisation after we've done the first four groups, um, the specifics of which escape for the time being, but it's generally all the old people and people in care homes and health. And yes. Um, and we will once, absolutely pick up on that later. Once, um, we've done, once we've done that by February, though, do we change it? And the point was made to mm -hmm. him that um, isn't it if purely from the NHS perspective, wouldn't it be better to keep going through the age categories? Because then you're starting to get into people under 65 and people in under 65 down to 50 who are, you know, of, of working age. Mm. Um, so you will be starting to get some of these key workers that people are understandably very keen to see um, bumped up the order. But also, Whilst the vast majority of deaths have been in people aged over, um, I think age over 75 is something like 80, 88% or something like that. Um, mm. A significant number of the hospitalizations and a significant number of the people in general acute beds and in uh, critical care beds and, and so forth in England's hospitals are in that sort of 40 to 60 age bracket. So just purely from the protect the NHS side of thing of the slogan. Um, would it not be better to, to, to put a focus some vaccine effort there? Um, and I think that's an interesting argument. And uh, I think Simon Stevens didn't really did, didn't necessarily speak directly to that that point. But um, uh, I think there's 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 a case to be made from a very narrow point of view. Um, but obviously, there's sort of different societal arguments that we'll get into. Actually, I think that's a, a, a great point to actually segue into um, vaccines more generally, actually. Um, so, Jasmine, perhaps you could, well, uh, just give us a quick update on the, um, the how the vaccine programme's going in terms of meeting the targets of, you know, quite a few famous targets around care homes and over 80s. And um, yeah, just wondering how things are going there. Yeah, so uh, moving on from what Jack said, um, there's the this mid-February uh, target that's uh, being worked towards at the moment. Um, so the overall aim is to have all uh, over 70, so everyone in the top four cohorts vaccinated uh, by mid-February. But within this, there was a target to have all residents of older care homes um, or older care home residents vaccinated by the 24th of January. Um, and this was outlined in a letter uh, from NHS England to primary care leaders on uh, January 13th. So it was a very tight deadline and a very quick turnaround. Um, as of, well, the weekend, um, I think Matt Hancock said uh, during the Andrew Marr show that they'd achieved 75% um, of older care home residents and uh, staff as well. Um, so although, you know, he didn't mention this deadline of the 24th, um, when we approached NHS England about this deadline uh, this week, they said that the deadline was actually the end of the month, so the 31st, and the deadline had never been the 24th, which was mm. interesting as it completely contradicts what was said in this initial letter. Um, so, I mean, Initially, in, in this letter, uh, primary care have been given um, various incentives to try and get care homes and their residents uh, vaccinated as quickly as possible, understandably so, because they're so significantly affected by coronavirus. Um, and there was there's still a kind of uh, cash incentive in place until the end of January. Um, so it just seems that there has been a bit of confusion over when this deadline is for whatever reason. Um, we approached Care England um, this week, which is like the body representative mm. for care homes, um, to ask why there might have been some of these, um, a delay on this deadline. 
Um, and there are kind of a few issues that are, are to be expected with a program this big, um, an, effort, an effort this big. Um, but for example, uh, care home staff were told to get their vaccinations at the vaccination hubs rather than the care homes themselves, which adds kind of, you know, an extra barrier into getting um, through cohorts quickly. There's also the issue of there's confusion over whether GPs should be going into care homes uh, where there's been a so-called coronavirus out outbreak, which I'm told is two cases or more um, to vaccinate. Um, and, but apparently the guidance around this has been recently updated and there's more clarity on that. Um, I was under the impression that GPs were told to go into care homes where there'd been, you know, where there were cases to just and just, you know, vaccinate as many people as possible. Um, so, yeah, that deadline hasn't been achieved, but I mean, it sounds like good progress uh, is definitely being made on that one. Um, and also, it sounds like talking to I've spoken to some uh, local primary care leads about how their vaccination programs um, been going, and in some cases, they they were. Um, sorry, one leader told me this week they were working to the 24th deadline. So it is something that, mm. you know, people were aware of um, and were working towards. Um, and I was then told that once they got through their care home, uh, their older care home, uh, care homes and staff, they then moved on to learning disabilities, uh, care homes for people with learning disabilities, sorry, um, which kind of brings on to the next point of, you know, inequalities and um, uh, kind of moving on from what Jack said, earlier there's uh, definitely a lot of discussion over them at the moment as to whether um, people with severe learning disabilities are too far down the priority list um, mm. in terms of whom in terms of who should get the vaccinations um, and when so at the moment they're priority six um, which you know is is pretty far down especially considering how people with learning uh, disabilities are severely affect, uh, uh, affected by coronavirus disproportionately affected sorry um so there's definitely kind of some ongoing discussions there and i know in some areas um the uh, primary care leaders just moved on to their uh, learning disability care homes straight after they'd finished their care homes for older people so there's definitely some uh, local decision making going on there um and i think jack mentioned earlier that simon stevens has actually said there are talks at least over whether the priorities will change and mm potentially those with learning disabilities will move be moved up the list that was the kind of impression that I got from you Jack um so it will be that that might be a decision that's made kind of after this February 15th deadline though so there might be some you know rejig of, of what's going on although um time will tell I guess yeah was it are you any clearer on why um, people with learning disabilities and autism were placed so, well, not so low down, but were placed lower down the priority list? And I mean, it just seems like what, what are the barriers into trying to kind of, I suppose, move them up? Is it to do with vaccine supply? Mm -hmm. um, in all honesty, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I don't have um, you know loads of knowledge on that area, but there are kind of um, various aspects of the list it might be down to kind of a lack of clarity over who falls into what cohort so i know mm. that some people with learning disabilities so for example people um with down syndrome um because of the condition they have they, they're actually higher up the priority list um they fall under i think it's the fourth priority which is clinically vulnerable. yes and extremely yeah, clinically mm. vulnerable 
So it may well be that there's just a lack of clarity over who yeah. falls into extremely clinically vulnerable and then those with severe learning disabilities. Um, mm. So, um, I mean, I'm not 100% sure if anyone wants to kind of come and talk to us about that. It'd be great to get a bit more yes. insight into that decision making and why they were placed so low. Um, mm. Because it does, uh, it does seem like an odd decision. Um, and I know there are some other cases, um, not necessarily when it comes to learning disabilities, but people with uh, respiratory conditions, for example, um, who fall into the sixth cohort as well. But, you know, it's what what is that kind of, you know, how do you distinguish between someone who falls into the sixth cohort and someone who is extremely clinically vulnerable? Because it's mm. such a fine line, if that makes sense. Um, so um, I do wonder if that was the priority list that was given initially because they wanted to focus on, you know, older people and particularly people in care homes. But as time's gone on, um, they'll have to change it around to kind of, um, you know, fit who needs it, who does need it most after kind of um, seeing how everything's going and and who and who coronavirus is affecting the most as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see what decisions are made um, kind of once the next target passes or even before then. Mm. And just on wastage, Jasmine, I wonder whether um, kind of it might just be up to local areas to to know, maybe GP surgeries to know who's registered there, to know who they can approach um, so vaccines aren't wasted. Um, I guess it kind of depends on, on what local areas are doing. But do you have any kind of insight on wastage? It's, it's something that um, our colleague Lawrence asked about in the press conference earlier this week, but there is it's currently data on that isn't published. I'm just wondering, I suppose it's all anecdotal at the moment, really, but... Um, you know do do we have any insight on how much is being wasted so in a short answer no <laughs> we don't mm. um but um i assume it is being recorded and it was in guidance to have it recorded yeah. when i talk to um people who are running local vaccination programs and um, they're very quick to say that actually there's been very minimal wastage which is obviously good news um and i haven't heard um otherwise from any other areas that you know they're really struggling with wastage um what is interesting is there was some more guidance from NHS England published this week about the transferring of vaccines between uh, different areas. So, for example, between NHS NHS trusts, uh, primary care networks, um, and how that should or shouldn't work. Um, kind of in the grand scheme of things, NHS England is discouraging the transfer of vaccines between those areas because mm. um, the argument is each primary care network, for example, is being given a uh, uh, enough of the vaccine based on you know the need in that area however there are some situations in which it is totally fine for the um, vaccine to be transferred um, to avoid wastage for example that's one of the big things if for example um, if for example there, uh, there was a supply issue in the area that NHS England said was not as uh, at the fault of um, the PCN network um, for example, I say not at the fault of the PCN network, but you know they did everything they can to um, uh, prepare for the vaccine arriving at a particular time. And then for whatever reason, the vaccine didn't arrive, which has happened in quite a few um, areas um, and that kind of thing. So there are definitely plans in place to avoid wastage where possible. But like I said earlier, I very much get the impression um, that local areas are just making a lot of yes. their own decisions so that they don't waste the vaccine absolutely yeah and there's been some more flexibility on rules as to who should get vaccinated um when in terms of the cohorts because i know kind of even a few weeks ago 
people um, or local vaccination services were worried um, about breaking the JCVI guidance um, and getting into trouble or potentially losing some of their vaccine supplies yes. as a result of it. Yeah, um, yeah. I know there's definitely been more flexibility um, now for uh, uh, PCN to kind of move down the priority list if they've access, if they've um, contacted everyone they possibly can in, in the cohorts that they should have moved through. So um, again, um, it would be um, great to talk to more people about how lo local programmes are going and how the local decision um, the local decision making process is going as well, particularly around um, learning disability care homes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, anyone anyone listening who is involved in a local local vaccination program, do get in touch with us. Um, we want to know more. And I think another um, kind of important story around um, data and vaccines uh, we published over the weekend, and um, it was um, in in this particular story um, NHS. Um, well, leaders, people in the NHS were urged, NHS England was being urged to publish um, race and ethnicity data um, when people are given their COVID vaccination, which was not being done. And just a few days later, it was announced that they were indeed going to start collecting this. And Nick, you covered this story. So I think maybe just um, kind of explaining why were there concerns that the NHS was failing to collect this data and why didn't they do it? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh last Sunday HSJ published this article which uh, talked about NHS England being urged to introduce this routine recording of race and ethnicity data when people are given their COVID vaccination. The program being used, which is Pinnacle, did not directly require for ethnicity to be recorded, but the necessary information that you would need on someone's ethnicity could be obtained through different areas such as GP records and, and through the National Immunisation Management Service, or otherwise known as NIMS. Mm. The concerns really stemmed from the fact that this did not appear to be introduced from the outset. First of all, seven weeks after the the vaccination program began, but also posed a few issues. The first being that it would provide a more comprehensive understanding of vaccine uptake among these diverse communities, particularly when we know that COVID has had a disproportionate impact mm. on these communities, specifically Black, Asian and other minority ethnic communities. That's the first thing. The second thing is is understanding that ethnicity is understood to be recorded in up to 70%, so between 60 to 70% of GP records. So it's not available for every single person. Moreover, the fact that it is possible that some people who have been vaccinated are not even registered with a GP. So there could be gaps in that data. So it's not as robust and comprehensive as it could be. And thirdly, but also quite important, is that the absence of this data could allow for misconceptions to manifest about low uptake among these communities, which can lead mm. to stigma, which we've already seen anecdotal evidence, according to the Race and Health Observatory, or vaccine hesitancy among these groups. And given the fact that COVID has had such a disproportionate impact, any sort of lapses in these areas can have quite a detrimental impact. So the urgency was there to kind of close this gap as soon as possible. So then we're not letting these communities who have been disproportionately affected be even further impacted and, and impacted in a way that that obviously can cost lives in some cases. Mm. So these three issues were brought up by Jabir Butt, who's the chief executive of the Race Equality Foundation which promotes race equality in public services, and also Dr. Partha Carr, mm -hmm. who's National Specialty Advisor for Diabetes with NHS England and a doctor in Portsmouth. They were both quite vocal about it. Other people started to also raise these concerns. And when HSJ approached NHS England about this, about 
the vaccination program Pinnacle not directly recording ethnicity data about two weeks ago, their response was, and quote, this is wrong as NHS, sorry, this is wrong as ethnicity information is already held on the patient record, which is linked from the NIMS. So it's disappointing that the HSJ is running a story which may unnecessarily worry people. So shortly after we published that story on Sunday, NHS England agreed to introduce the routine collection of ethnicity data. Mm. So now Pinnacle is going to directly record people's ethnicity information when they get vaccinated seven weeks after the campaign was launched so nearly two months in before we arrived at this stage mm -hmm. uh, it should be noted though that in about september october uh nhs england did make a regulatory requirement sorry cough there which which <laughs> <laughs> which made gp which meant that gp practices had to record ethnicity data when this was required mm -hmm. from january 2021 so this month but the fact that the it system pinnacle did not do this from the outset is what raised eyebrows yes ethnicity could be obtained from patients records from the start through nims and so on and so forth but the difference is is that recording it from the outset in this IT system gives a more comprehensive, robust and deeper sort yeah. of pool to choose from this data. So that's the difference. It's not that it wasn't recorded necessarily from the start and that there was nothing there. It's the fact that there were these gaps that needed to be plugged yes. to ensure that it was comprehensive and for these diverse communities who have been badly, badly impacted by this virus. and. As previously stated, with the ethnicity data being recorded, as is understood in up to 70% of GP records, it means that this can be improved by recording it from the outset. And so the reaction from following HSJ's article on the update of NHS England introducing this routine recording was positive. Health Watch England, the Royal Society of Public Health and the Race Equality Foundation have all welcomed it. Galib Khan, who's the chair of Medical Information for Ethnic Minorities, which is a charity which promotes equal access for the health and medical information for black and minority ethnic communities, said it was about time. And mm. Chibit Butt, who I mentioned earlier, said the move will be welcomed when we see the data. So yeah, it's good, but let's see, you know, when it comes out. Mm. But it does also bring up an interesting question, which was brought to me by Alison Moore, my colleague, who said the other day, is equality and diversity really at the top of the NHS agenda when something like this is brought about almost two months later? And it's it's a fair point because we've seen obviously what the last 12 to 18 months have brought with COVID and the death of George Floyd in the US, bringing a, a sharp focus on on what we're doing about these health inequalities, about the 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 impact of of things like this have on on diverse communities and while we have seen a lot of change and a lot of actions and statements and and a lot of you know drives to ensure that these inequalities are you know minimized to the to the minimum that they can be you know, for something like this to come in seven weeks later it does raise a few eyebrows and it has because of the, the public sort of reaction to it. Mm, I think maybe people just assumed that it was being collected because I, I imagine that, for example, gender maybe was collected. So, it's mm. you know, why why was this 
operability not not in it from the start um and i think i just wonder what so now it is being collected what um do you think like what impact do you think it could have could it help um kind of the nhs focus in on particular communities perhaps who have a very low uptake and who might be more at risk um is that yeah. is that the hope for it it's it perhaps i mean it does open a lot of doors in the sense that you now have this richer understanding of who these communities are when they get vaccinated and it allows for you to kind of maybe at a local level target that decision making in certain ways because not everywhere is going to have the same sort of uh, demographic to choose from different areas of have different uh, populations in the demographics so to answer your question it's a bit too early maybe to say because also the whilst this is being recorded it needs to be fed into the system so it's the first thing to actually have it recorded but then also have it fed into the actual system to see this data but going forward it does open opportunities it does allow for a bit more sort of latitude i suppose to to make a difference in those communities where maybe vaccine uptake is lacking a little bit or make mm -hmm. sure that that uh, certain communities are not left behind so to speak and am i right in thinking that we should um, expect the first um, data dump from this this afternoon yeah that is the hope that is the hope okay. that it would come up this uh today this afternoon as of recording this so uh, let's see very good and um, listeners you can read all about it on our on our website later today or tomorrow i'm sure uh, depending on when the data actually comes out um and just very um just the last couple of minutes uh, before it's time to close um on the topic of um well inequalities really i think um, it'd just be good to get a bit of an update on what's going on with test and trace i feel like i've not talked about test and trace on this podcast since before christmas um but um jack maybe you could um just give us a bit of an update on some of the i don't know some of the sort of key points in your mind at the moment it's been thrown back into if not the headlines then the um the stand first of, of, of british newspapers because there was a um uh, public accounts committee hearing quite recently where it seemed like all of the bigwigs of the nhs and dhse were up before the mps um uh, dido harding was among them um and i um the health foundation um uh, does a really good job of sort of tracking the data on this routinely and i'd urge people to go and look at their sort of routine publication on it because it's quite valuable just to sort of see that actually numbers on you know turnaround times of uh, uh tests and the number of people who are contacted um and the speed and the uh, uh the and that sort of thing um mm. you know is, is is better than the summer there's no, no no doubt about it and it has improved and dido harding was able to be a bit more bullish before the mps um uh, than she might otherwise have been um uh there's a there's two two key things that sort of have arisen from that one is the fact that huge amounts of money is still being spent on consultants um, which made the headlines uh, uh in no uncertain terms um but the other one is uh this is more to the point on the um inequalities uh is the um people are still um, unwilling or unable to isolate after getting either a positive test or being um, being told that they've been a close contact of someone who's been tested positive. And as Dido Harding mentioned a statistic where about 60% of people do isolate. So that's two fifths who to a greater or lesser extent aren't isolating. Now she did point out that that will include people who are kind of, you know, staying at home 
in the daylight hours, but go go out for a walk around the block at midnight or 1am when they're confident they're not going to bump into anybody. So we can take that sort of figure with a pinch of salt, but it really demonstrates we still have this strong issue with, with, with isolation. And there will be some people who are sort of brazenly breaking the rules, but I think there's still a very large number of people who can't afford to um, to isolate, Absolutely. Afford to take a fortnight off, uh, fortnight off work. Um, and I think that also feeds into slightly into another statistic from Test and Trace, which is around the number of um, close contacts that are identified and their details passed to the Test and Trace team. Now, some of this, which is decreasing, is you know, the average number of contacts of people who try to test positive is now down to about two, and that could partly be because of, um, uh, we're, we're isolating and we're in lockdown, so people just aren't bumping into other people as much. Um, but there's also a sense that you know, your, uh, individuals are unwilling to kind of dob in their friends and relatives um, to the test and trace system because then they'll be obliged to isolate themselves and therefore they will lose out on, um, they potentially have to go off work sick and lose out on income and, and have that horrible quandary of um, ignoring the important public health instruction to isolate mm -hmm. um, uh, and going and earning, earning money in order to support their families or um, uh, being in a parlous financial state for a fortnight and you know all of the uh, terrible ramifications that might happen. Absolutely, it does seem like the most could be the single most um, kind of important policy to to pay people when they have to self-isolate. Um, obviously, it would cost the Treasury, but the impact it could have on public health would be massive. Mm -hmm. um, thanks for that, Jack. And I think um, we've kind of come to the end of our time now. I think we could have carried on a bit longer, but um, thank you all for joining me. And just a reminder to listeners, um, the podcast is available every week on the hsj.co.uk website and across all main podcast channels. Do get in touch with any comments about the discussion today or something you think we should be talking about. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week.